1: To another episode of Lunchtime Movie Review, the podcast where we look back at some of our childhood favorites and see if they stand the test of time. I'm Chris.
2: I'm Jonna. G'day, I'm Shane a.
1: And today we are reviewing a film where a hacker teaches us that the only way to win in a nuclear war is not to play. 1983's War Games, directed by John Badham and starring Matthew Broderick, Dabney Coleman, John Wood, and a very young Ali Sheedy. I guess Matthew Broderick was pretty young, but Alice Sheedy looks really young in this. But before we begin, a word from our sponsor. Today's podcast is brought to you by Burger King, home of the Whopper. Whether you're on the run or confined to an underground bunker, Burger King hits the spot every time. We aren't playing games here. Our flame-broiled burgers are something anyone would happily die for. So don't wait for time to run out. Come to Burger King. Aren't you hungry now? Um, And since this was my
0: pick, I've got the summary.
1: When the U.S. Air Force issues a number of surprise drills to test its controllers on their ability to launch nuclear strikes, they learn a certain percentage will never turn the key to attack. This enables NORAD's John McKittrick to convince the government to automate the process and take the human element out of killing. The government agrees this is a good idea and grants NORAD's supercomputer whopper full nuclear control. That would never happen today, would it, Jonna?
2: Mm.
1: Meanwhile, out in Seattle, high school student David Lightman is a bludgeoning hacker able to illegally change his and his is he little. A
0: bludgeoning hacker or a burgeoning hacker?
1: No, he's a bludgeoning in my in my summary. <laughs> Um, Is a bludgeoning hacker able to illegally change his and his little friend Jennifer Mack's grades on his his school's mainframe? At dinner one night, David looks through a magazine and sees an ad for ProtoVision's upcoming games. Wanting to play them now, David sets out to hack his way into the company's server. The company is located in Sunnyvale, California, and David programs his computer to dial random numbers in the city to find ProtoVision's system. He lands upon one that doesn't identify itself, and he can't log into its server. Thinking that he's found ProtoVision, David has it lists its games, which it does. Most titles are of of the boring variety, but one in particular, Global Thermal Nuclear War, catches his interest. Unable to guess the password to the server, David goes to two other hacker friends for advice. They tell him to look for a backdoor password using the game Falcon's Maze as his first clue. David skips school all week to do research that might lead him to the password. He discovers a man named Stephen Falcon, who was an artificial intelligence researcher, and David digs into his background. One day, when David's little friend Jennifer is over, he has an epiphany. Falcon had a son named Joshua, who died as a child. David tries Joshua's name as the password, and it works. Unfortunately, David doesn't log into Protovision system. He logs into the military's Whopper supercomputer at the Cheyenne Mountain complex. David begins his game of global thermal nuclear war with Joshua, playing as the Soviet Union. When the computer starts the simulation, all of NORAD goes off because it thinks the Soviets have actually launched a strike against the United States. David has to end the game quickly, though, to take out the trash, and NORAD has to stand down. However, Joshua continues to play the game, and it plays to win. What happens when your supercomputer doesn't understand the difference between simulation and reality? You get one whopper of a mess. NORAD continues to see the simulation play out on its screens, but they don't know it's a simulation. This causes them to drop the nation's DEFCON level, and once it hits one, it's World War III. Back at home, David sees a news broadcast about the computer attack and figures his game was the source for it. The FBI soon comes to town and reads David's his rights, and they arrest him. The FBI takes David to NORAD, where they deny him the rights they read him in Seattle, and they continually question him. Da- David figures out Whopper is Joshua, and that it is playing the game, but he is unable to convince McKittrick that this is what is going on. Instead, the FBI slaps espionage charges on him. While there, David also discovers that Falcon is still alive and living on an island in Oregon. Figuring Falcon can fix the mess, David blends in with a group of visiting tourists and escapes the complex. He then calls Jennifer to ask her to purchase a ticket to Oregon. When he arrives there, David finds Jennifer has driven three hours to the airport to meet him. The two then travel to Falcon's Island for help. Fine, Falcon. they do, but he's a broken man that's convinced nuclear war is not only inevitable, but it is as futile as a game of tic-tac-toe. Eventually, they do convince him to return to NORAD to help stop Whopper from starting a real war. As the three head to the Cheyenne Mountain Complex, Whopper simulates a Soviet strike against the United States. Since everyone still believes this to be a legitimate attack, NORAD prepares to strike back. Falcon, David, and Jennifer arrive just in the nick of time to get the military to cancel their retaliation. The simulation hits the United States, but nothing happens, proving to them what they're seeing is, in fact, a simulation. Unfortunately, Joshua is still playing the game to win and doesn't understand that this is a game. It begins a brute force attack to learn the launch code so it can launch the missiles itself. Once again, this is possible because at the beginning of the film, McKittrick successfully lobbied to get rid of humans in the launch centers and automate them through Whopper. Joshua eliminates any ability to log into the mainframe, and the military is unable to just unplug everything, as Whopper would interpret that as our country's destruction. Therefore, it would initiate its last instructions, which would still be to launch the missiles. Instead, David makes Joshua play itself in tic-tac-toe with hopes it will successfully learn the futility of no-win simulations. As Whopper obtains the last launch code, it begins to simulate the winner of its war games, and Joshua discovers that there is no winner in any of the situations. Whopper slash Joshua learns the concept of mutual assured destruction and does not launch the missiles. Joshua decides the only winning move of global thermal nuclear war is not to play, and it ends the game David started. Joshua then offers to play a nice game of chess for a happy ending. <laughs> so, John, completely Good implausible.
0: Not completely, <laughs> I guess.
1: Maybe more than we think it's real. Shane um, you got movie yes. numbers for us?
2: I certainly do. Uh, War Games, directed by John Badham, was released in the US on the 3rd of June, 1983, and released in Australia on the 4th of August, 1983. There was an approximate budget for production of $12 million, and in the US it grossed uh, uh, $79,568,000. It was released the same day as Psycho 2, The Man with Two Brains, The Return of Martin Gurr, which incidentally was the original French version of Summersby, the 1993 Richard Gere, Jodie Foster movie. Uh, The illustrious Rotten Tomatoes, gives it 93% critics and 75% audience aggregate scores. There was an unofficial remake, uh, not a sequel, made in 2008 called War Games' The Dead Game, which was a direct-to-DVD movie or direct-to-video movie. And the guy who rebooted Power Rangers recently, Dean Israelite, is on the agenda to remake this film war games in the near future
1: so it still has relevance since uh, people are wanting to remake this quite a bit i think pretty I much i think
2: so yeah yeah i think so my dvd copy is the 25th anniversary edition so they made a special edition of it it's got some games that have been uh, made up from the movie and i think it's just generally a favorite from the 80s not quite a cult movie, but a lot of people still really like it.
1: I had ColecoVision back in the day, and I really wanted that game, but I never got it.
2: <laughs> I just loved the arcade game, uh, the arcade scene when he was in there uh, playing Galaga, and you could see Miss Pac-Man, and there was a Tron video game in the background. It's pretty cool. You don't see that very often anymore. Mm-mm.
1: Jonna, did you see this back in the day?
2: I did. I
0: did. And I remember liking it back then um, and liking Matthew Broderick, of course. This was only his second movie. So, you know, he, he was a newcomer on the scene. But I couldn't really remember much about it other than that I liked it. And then I watched it last
2: night and enjoyed it again.
1: Shane, had you seen it back when it first came out?
2: I couldn't remember it. So I was like watching a new movie for me. And I had seen it, but it's been such a long time. Even though I had the DVD I purchased a few years ago, I hadn't actually put it in to watch. Uh, I, I remember liking it at the time, but watching it a second time, I think it was it was good, but it got a little bit more contrived as it went on. I know I'm being a little bit too harsh and critical because it's just a fun movie, but it was it was good in, in moments. Matthew Broderick, yeah, you're right. You could tell he was fairly uh, young and fresh in it because he's acting definitely got better, even only a couple of years after
1: this. Yeah, I had seen this movie a number of times, both in the theater and on the HBO loop. So um, I, I I remember the the story very well. And I, I've seen it within the last five years as well before this podcast. And um, I've always enjoyed this movie a lot, but I will agree with you, Shane, that it does get a little silly towards the end. I mean, it's, it's popcorn fare. It's not supposed to be... I mean, it takes on a serious topic, but it's not necessarily the most um intensive dramas or thrillers so it, it does get a little silly at the end i've never been a big fan of professor um Falking's character even back when i was a little kid i always thought he was a little pointless in many yeah. ways
2: yeah i think it was from the moment where he escapes from that room uh it started getting a bit silly for me after that it was a pretty good build up and the the whole uh tension and the it, it was a pretty good uh, thriller drama, but then, yeah, it gets too much towards the end to be taken too seriously or get excited about.
1: You know, I went, I know it's a, not necessarily the biggest mainstream film of 1983. I mean, it was released. What time of year was it again, Shane? Did you say?
2: Summer. June. Yeah, it came oh, out. so it was a block in the US in June. Yeah, and that was, that was your summer.
1: So. I know that it influenced Ronald Reagan a lot. He saw the movie, and it did change some American policy just by seeing that. So I guess that is a good thing.
2: There was a picture of him on the wall in the in the war room. I think I mm-hmm. spotted.
1: No, I didn't. I haven't spotted that one.
0: No, the sign I spotted was at the beginning when they walk in, and it says, "Anyone who urinates in this area will be discharged." And I thought that was a very military thing to post too. <laughs>
1: Well, it, there was some uh, some stereotypical military characters in this too, like the, the guard who wouldn't stop hitting on the girl to the point of harassment. Um, that's a very yeah. 80s sort of military thing. Yeah,
2: yeah there, was, there was a lot of stereotypical characters through it.
0: It did have a very um, 80s feel. I It sort of surprised me, actually, the tech that they used. I think it was situated well for the movie, but you know, the modem with the phone that you put down in it and he has to call and but I think they he's using like an Amiga computer and some of that some of that stuff. was pretty interesting.
2: And he managed to hack a public phone box with with like a ring pull from a can. I didn't know you could do that.
1: I've always wondered to this day if that's possible or if it's just movie magic.
0: <laughs> if you think about sort of the history of technology that some of that stuff probably was possible just because security wasn't as big on the radar. I don't think, you know, this was all so new
1: up to this time. You didn't really have a whole lot of people hacking into government or even non-government entities uh, from the cover of their home, the anonymity, anonymity,
0: anonymity anonymity of their home you didn't have people hacking because it wasn't and it wasn't in common use i mean the internet or anything like that wasn't in common use at least until the late 80s early 90s and then it was still pretty rare that was like the introduction of AOL and CompuServe and ICQ and some of those
1: didn't they have some
0: very early 90s
1: some very basic bulletin board systems in the early 80s and that's
0: yeah, but not really widespread use at all. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? So if you're a company or even the military, you're not as focused on the security of your system. And, and people who design systems do build back doors into them. You know, that's, that's a common practice. So that actually didn't seem out of the realm of possibility for me. But it also had that sort of tinge of one of the things that it, that often annoys me about, um, like, movies about technology is there's always this, like, fear that the AI is going to take over. You know, this underlying cultural anxiety about the computer's going to decide it can't simulate.
2: That's kind of what Joshua did at the end of this. Decided it wanted to do its own thing. Um, yeah. And I think more of the paranoia was about the Russians, as usual, the Cold War during this time, which a lot of the computer movies were based around these, in this era.
0: Right. Which also sort of made this this movie kind of disconcerting to watch. Well, Even, the Russians are our
2: friends now, Jonna,
1: so you don't have to worry about that.
0: I look forward <laughs> to serving our Soviet overlords.
2: Well, oh, the Red Bird missile alert, Didn't really happen until about forty minutes in to the movie, Um, and then it went from there. But yeah, I just like the the fact that they had the uh, the AI just sort of taking over itself in the end, and then the most of the humans were all just sitting around, except for Matthew Broderick (laughs) thinking up words.
1: Well, I think this is one of the first films that took that theme, and I think a lot of subsequent films after you know just. Um, just went with it even further so i think that might be it kind of might be the basis of subsequent ai films because how many of them were really out there early 80s there was uh, space odyssey I'm trying to think what else talked about
2: oh Failsafe. safe there was a movie called Failsafe, safe which uh-huh. was about a, a launch against the russians from the 60s um but Really, I think Electric Dreams was a couple of years later, but obviously that's different again. But it still was computer-themed. Um, when it comes to nuclear warheads and that, there wasn't, there wasn't really a lot that I can think comes to mind. There was a lot of things like Hackers and the Net in the 90s. Sneakers was another one. So Lawnmower Man, movies like that sort of had... Uh, Virtual reality or computers as the basis of their storylines taking over, or creating havoc. But I can't think of a lot that had similar themes to what War Games gives us.
1: Yeah, because at that time it was more like Tron, sort of yeah artificial or computer generated uh, landscapes, I guess you could say. So this was was did kind of stand out from the norm, I think.
2: Definitely. I think that's why it still stands the test of time and people refer to it on a regular basis when it comes to hacking movies or World War Three films.
1: And I don't think Fine. any other had a Eugene from Greece in
0: it. <laughs> it was interesting to see all the people that I've seen in other movies. Oh, wow, he's really young. Oh, wow, she's really young.
1: Because
0: mm-hmm. um, this was a long time ago. But I think that, like I said, about the cultural anxiety, about the Russians, about the Cold War, about computers generally, because they're just starting to come into the public consciousness, right? That there are these things that do this and have the potential to do other things. And what does that mean for us as human beings? Like, I think that's a sort of eternal question.
1: Yeah, I think home computers are just finally starting to become affordable. Uh, around this time.
0: I remember my ex-husband telling me that you could talk to people on this thing called the internet. And I was like, what, (laughs) what do you mean? That's crazy talk. And he showed me ICQ and CompuServe where you could in real time talk with real human beings or
2: sort of. Speaking of some of the actors, did you spot Michael Madsen at the start? He was very young uh and james tolkien as well of course the principal from back to the future and commander in top gun it was good to see him
1: yeah i forgot he was in the film very brief but he was in it
2: <laughs> barry corbin he's a bit of a character actor you know him as soon as he starts talking i always remember first seeing him in a show called northern exposure
1: yeah he was the general right yeah. Yeah, he's he's uh, one of those that I can remember forever. And he was perfect as the general, especially taking uh, swigs of his big man Chew throughout the film. And uh, <laughs> what did he say to the president? That's bullshit. No, not you. He's So he's got some pretty good comedic timing.
2: Yeah. It, and he said something about, and I didn't quite understand it, something about, oh, we've been doing this before you were watching Howdy Doody. And I wasn't sure what Howdy Doody was, but I've figured it out. It's a kid's show from the 60s.
0: Mm-hmm. A creepy kid's show with a creepy puppet.
2: Right. Oh, I didn't even know it.
0: <laughs> I'm glad that I bypassed that and went straight to He-Man.
2: Captain
1: Kangaroo was the one that I got. And um, what was the the 70s show? H.R. Puffin and Stuff. The big acid trip show for kids. That was, that's what I got. I didn't get um, Howdy Doody. <laughs> now, one of my favorite actors was uh, from the 70s and 80s was in this, in uh, Mr. 9 to 5 himself, Dabney Coleman. He plays the perfect asshole character in every film. He wasn't, I mean, he was a little bit of a prick in this one, but there's some, uh, some humanity to him at the end of this film. And uh, I, I always enjoy his performance in this, and, and in most films I see him in. So I always like it when he's in one of my old-time films I re review.
2: I agree. He's good, and his, character, his characterizations, especially around this time, never vary too much. But he did show some compassion, like you say, Chris, in this. I think he kind of looked at Matthew Broderick's character thinking, well, this guy is kind of smart. He's a bit of a punk, but he's still smart. Well, let's just treat him normally. Um, and then they ended up all working together anyway. But I like Dabney Coleman. He was always good in uh, Tootsie. I love to It's a
1: great one, um, okay. and I think in a version of this that they wrote for him, he uh, actually took on Matthew Broderick's character uh, David as a um, as a, um, gave him a part time job as his assistant after the ordeal was over.
2: So that could have been the sequel. You think? Maybe. I don't know if this
1: mo- this would have had a- been good as a sequel or with the sequels. No, I agree
2: so. it's a one off. Mm-hmm. Too many sequels because obviously the 80s was the year, the when all these sequels sort of started. It's good that they didn't do it. I mean, the one that they did do that I mentioned all those years later came and went. Nobody knew about it.
1: Yeah, straight it. to DVD, that's why I never heard of it.
2: He uh did you notice how um David Matthew Broderick's character was uh changing his grades? There at the start, just like he does in Ferris Bueller.
1: Mm -hmm. It's an interesting, (laughs) I don't know um, if John Hughes meant to do that or it's just the way the the character worked out for Ferris Bueller, but his mom was also in both films was a um, realtor. So I don't know if that's just a a throwback or or what the deal is. And it's funny to go from War Games to Ferris Bueller to see how much Matthew Broderick grew as an actor because he did look a little nervous in this film, you know, it's not the the actor that you think of when you think of his later movies, uh, like Biloxi Blues or even Ferris Bueller.
0: I guess he was kind of cocky in War Games, but he, it wasn't the same level. You know what I mean? Like, there's just that sort of aura of confidence that he puts forth in most of his movies later on.
1: There's flashes of his cockiness in this, where um, Ally Sheedy's character, uh, Jennifer, where she says... You could go to jail for that. And he says, not if you're under 18, but what's the first thing they do? They arrest him.
0: I was looking at his filmography after I watched this and I had forgotten so many of the good movies that he was in down the line. Because I think he's sort of iconic for my growing up years, movie wise.
1: But it's interesting. He was never considered one of those Brat Packers. Uh, Ali Sheedy was in that group, but. I don't think he was ever really in with that that same I wouldn't say same crowd, but I would say, you know, same general age group.
2: Yeah, he was in the age group, but the Brat Pack was coined for those selected oh, uh, I guess, Breakfast Club and Saint Elmo's Fire Guys all around that time. And he wasn't doing those teen style comedies, Matthew Broderick. He he sort of He did, obviously, Ferris Bueller, but he wasn't doing the average teen comedies like the other guys were doing.
1: Yeah, because he followed this up with Lady Hawk.
2: Lady Hawk, the sword and sorcery film where he fell in love with Michelle Pfeiffer, wasn't it? Yeah. Or Rutger Hauer (laughs) fell in love with Michelle Pfeiffer.
1: Uh, Matthew probably fell in love with her, too. Who wouldn't fall in love with Michelle Pfeiffer? (laughs) But, yeah, that's not... I mean, it's kind of a, a, a little action comedy type movie, but it's not really like a John Hughes style or St. Elmo's fire style. So he, I think he did do his own thing that kept him out of that Brat Packer type genre.
2: Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, things like Biloxi blues and family business, which was, uh, he was co-starring with Dustin Hoffman and Sean Connery. So he was sort of in a different, maybe crowd, different sort of movie making crowd than his, you know, same age colleagues. He even starred in um I'm not sure what year it was would have been around 1990 with uh, with Marlon Brando in a film called "The Freshman." So Matthew Broderick was sort of in a different like I said different crowd. I don't know um obviously was acting with a lot of the uh, classic actors of the time as well.
1: He was probably trying to be taken a little bit more seriously, I think i mean glory that's a that's a fairly serious movie. You know, that's not...
2: Well, that was Academy Award nominated, Denzel, mm-hmm. and yeah. so forth. Yeah, that was a big film. And he was a an officer in that, so he might have been playing an older character than what his actual age was.
1: I'm trying to place him in um, Max Duggan Returns. That was a long time ago that I saw that film, but I know he was in It.
2: Jason Robard's comedy. Yeah. I want to say that was around
1: 1980, 1981 that came out.
2: Well, of course, he does a lot of stage stuff too. Uh, he was in the.
0: I'm sorry, it's Max Dugan Returns in '83.
2: Oh, okay. '83, same year as War Games. Mm-hmm.
0: Right. They said War Games was only his second movie,
2: so. Well, the director of War Games, John Badham, also made Blue Thunder the same year as this. So they're, they're two pretty high profile, high budget kind of movies to do in one year. And, of course, he made Short Circuit a couple of years later, which also had a computer, not so much hacking theme, but it was definitely a computer engineering theme. And, Chris, did you know that uh, or did you notice that this was an MGM United Artists film?
1: Yeah. Mm -hmm.
2: So Heaven's Gate was only a couple of years before this, but they still managed to uh, get enough money to make this one couple of years later
1: this was um so mgm purchased united artists pretty much a a year or so after heaven's gate and then so this probably would have been one of their first uh joint ventures acquisition yeah
2: yeah just thought that was interesting seeing we recently talked about heaven's gate
1: now one thing i wanted to talk about was the actual norad command center which was at the time the most expensive set i think ever constructed at a million bucks of 1983 money. And Shane, didn't you say this film only had a budget of 20 million? So that's a pretty considerable chunk of the budget. 12, 12, 12 million. Okay. 12 million. And so even
2: budget of 12 million.
1: So, I mean, they got their money's worth in this, this, it looks so good that it kind of embarrassed the real NORAD into upgrading their systems because they were running it, on it like 1950s good. technology at the time.
2: I mean, it looked good because it was big and spacious, And but how hard is it to make a whole lot of little blinking lights? <laughs> you don't know what those lights are doing. They're just blinking.
1: Well, the vector graphics for the the screens, I mean, they didn't have big screens like that at the time. So I think that they okay. they put a lot of ingenuity. Yeah, the Whopper, that was pretty much what? Wood, blinking lights, and a metallic paint. <laughs> um <laughs> But yeah. the actual all the screens up front and what they had to do to animate it with their technology of the time. And I believe they had these um, these screens playing real time in front of the actors. So that's a pretty good feat for the time. And I think they even got an Oscar for that. One of their technical Oscars.
2: Well, it certainly deserved it then if it, if it did. I know it got nominated for two or three Oscars. I did not know won anything.
1: Yeah, I think it's one of those that they don't award at the actual show, kind of like the little ceremony the day before or something. But I think, if I remember yep. correctly, they did get some sort of technical Oscar for this.
2: Well, one thing it wouldn't have been nominated for is the uh, score, the soundtrack, reminded me a bit of Police Academy. It was all um, a, a mixture of uh, military-style horns and drums and, yeah, I don't know if I liked it at all. It was just all really stereotypical.
1: Wasn't there a harmonica in this too?
2: Yeah. yeah it wasn't good. Just kept thinking of police Academy and just every other war movie kind of comedy like stripes you've ever seen.
0: At least you didn't think of happy feet.
2: No, never. Well, no, not this time.
1: Another movie that I remember finally from this time, that's kind of similar. And it has Dabney Coleman is, uh, cloak and dagger and uh we had considered reviewing that as well but um you know they're both kind of the same sort of themes where the government is after this this kid who uh has done something he shouldn't although in cloak and dagger he didn't really do anything he shouldn't have he just saw something he shouldn't have but um and that's that's more violent uh towards kids that cloak and dagger i saw that recently and that was it kind of surprised me but um so it kind of fit the the genre type that they had in the early 80s of um adults dumb kids do these extraordinary things they get in extraordinary trouble they get out in extraordinary ways and uh so this kind of did fit the uh the the tropes of the early 80s
2: yeah i've never uh, actually seen cloak and dagger i've heard you talk about it and i've known about it my entire movie going life but i've never watched it so that that would be one i'd be interested in seeing if it's similar and I always get it mixed up cloak and dagger with a movie I have seen called Daryl from, um, I think around 1985, which was about an artificial intelligence, little robot boy that escapes from a a government facility. So maybe it's completely different, but I always used to get those two mixed up.
0: Yeah. Cloak and dagger was good. If I remember correctly.
1: Well, cloak and dagger, I hadn't seen for about 20 years. And then I watched it last year. And um I still enjoyed it thoroughly. It's a it's a great film that holds up but uh I was I was surprised at the uh the t- the amount of violence towards this little boy. Uh, why am I blanking out on the kid who plays E.T.'s name?
2: Henry Thomas?
1: Uh, so Henry Henry Thomas they they treat him pretty rough in the, in that film. So uh, I was surprised I about re- that.
2: I didn't realize Henry Thomas was in it. So that's a bonus. He's good.
1: What year did E.T. come out? 82. Okay, so this was, um, so this was 1984 that Cloak and Dagger had come out. So a couple of years after that, and uh, I mean, even E.T. was the government chasing these little kids, and you know, using kind of excessive force towards kids to the point where Steven Spielberg took out guns and replaced them with walkie-talkies in later versions. So
2: well, I
0: didn't know that Cloak and Dagger was a Marvel comics invention.
2: Well, that, that's that's just great. Cloak and Dagger sits right next to. Howard the Duck, <laughs> both Marvel.
0: Can we forget that Howard
2: the Duck ever existed? I
1: love Howard the <laughs> Duck. It's a terrible movie, but I love watching it.
2: Oh, God. There's like, something in War Games that it surprised me, and it always does when I hear this, but there's a scene near the end where Matthew Broderick's character, David, admits he can't swim. I thought most people could swim.
1: It's especially ironic because of all the water in Seattle. I think that's why it makes it funny (laughs) um, that his character can't swim. But it actually, I guess it's not surprising because his parents are kind of absentee parents. They're there, but they're not there. They're not really caring parents. So I could see them not teaching him how to swim when he was a little kid.
2: Yeah, okay, I guess.
1: All right, let's go around the table here. Um, when all is said and done, uh, what are your thoughts on this film, and uh, did do you think it stands the test of time? Jonna, we'll start with you.
0: This was a fun film. I did think it stood the test of time. Um, a little weird to watch it now. Um, I'll give it three and a half mad scientists, or three and a half um, rogue computers, sure.
1: There you go. Shane T, or Shane A?
2: Yeah, I agree. It's a fun movie for the Pac-Man generation and I enjoyed watching it. Like I said, I didn't remember very much of it at all so it was like watching a new film and I, if you get over how dated it is and how contrived it gets towards the end, it's still got a lot happening and it's, it's probably a blueprint to a lot of the hack movies that came after it and still regarded a classic so it definitely stands the test of time and is an enjoyable watch. I'll give it 3 Pac-Man's out of 5.
1: I'll agree that this stands the test of time. This is a very much a nostalgia pick for me. Something I remember finally from um watching it as a kid and I still watch it periodically every few years now. Um I I I agree that it's gets silly uh towards the end, but um overall it it's just a fun movie that um I think is very relevant today. Um, And although I'm in general against reboots or remakes, I think that this would be a perfect film to remake in today's world, especially in the world of hackers, how good they have gotten these days. I think it would be make for a very good thriller. So I actually would like them to remake this one and I'm actually going to give it four out of five. Aliceties If I get if one <laughs> so wolf we'll one
2: Alicedi is would be great
1: <laughs> 4 417 year old Aliceties makes it legal it makes it less creepy I
2: think <laughs> but you're talking about the remake Chris and you how you would think it might make a good film well I mentioned at the start that uh, the director Dean Israelite who recently did the Power Rangers movie against all odds mate He made that a pretty decent, watchable, good film, I've got to say. I I thought I was going to write it off, and when I was watching it, it's actually not bad, so he could be the right man for the job.
1: Yeah, like I said, I'd like to see it. Well, that's it for today's Nostalgic Review. Please let us know what you think of the film in the comments section on our website, and rate it from 1 to 5 stars on that page as well. If there is an 80s film you'd like us to review, please send us an email at comments at moviehousememories.com with your name, your pick, and your location. And finally, if you are of the social media persuasion, you can look the MHM Podcast Network up on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. And if you do, please give us a follow when you find us. On behalf of the whole gang here at Lunchtime Movie Review, thanks for tuning in. And until next time, we have to get out of here. And you guys are invited. This podcast is intended for entertainment and information purposes only. The theme song for Lunchtime Movie Review, Fireworks, is brought to you by Alexander Nakarada at serpentinesoundstudios.com under a creative commons attribution 4.0 license. All original content of this podcast is the intellectual property of Lunchtime Movie Review, the MHM Podcast Network, and Fuzzy Bunny Slippers Entertainment LLC unless otherwise noted.